This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Hello there, how you doing? It's uh, Kevin Riley here and welcome to Irish Time here on the Man of Two People's Radio, the best community station in the province in fact. Uh, well certainly, definitely Man of Two and I think we go a lot further than that, the coverage. Anyway, I'm just going to get some Irish news stuff, bits and pieces I've picked up because I'm still having problems with my uh, computer. Oh, kind of drives me up the wall sometimes. Anyway, I find this a bit interesting here. Uh, the M1 is the, the main drag from Dublin up to Belfast, the main sort of uh, motorway. And it's the thousands of fed-up punters down in uh, the south are hitting, hitting the Belfast pubs. 90% of the hotel uh, bookings, 90% of hotels have been booked you know, for weekends, etc., etc. Thousands of fed-up pint lovers from the Republic are taking up a quick spin to the, up the M1 and descending on Belfast each week after Northern Ireland eased its uh, COVID-19 restrictions. Some of the city's hotels are 90% booked up by customers from across the border. The tourism chiefs expect the number to rise and the people, there's some interviews with some of the you know, the younger women and younger men who, were, who made the effort, who just love it. And I thought Belfast people were very friendly towards them, which was brilliant. You see how that goes because it's now July the 2nd. See what happens in the July the 12th, you know. Hopefully all will be sort of peace and quiet. Anyway, I got, uh, came across this stuff here. Guy James McLean, he's a football player, you know. I know a lot of you aren't particularly football mad, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's more this is rugby country, but uh, where I'm from, it's you know football is the game. Rugby is university boys play football. All the all the plebs like myself, we all play football or take a part in football. Anyway, this is a guy called uh, James McLean, who plays for Stoke City, and it's about sort of the, the racism he sort of encountered. Uh, over this Germany and uh, England game, has once again been hit with a wave of anti-racist abuse on social media. After he posted a photo of himself wearing a German uh, jersey to Instagram there last week, presumably looking to taunt England fans ahead of their mouth-watering last 16 tie against their old rivals, the Ireland National made it clear who he was wanted to win. So we're kind of asking for it in a way. McLean has a long history of animosity with English football fans, which began when he was the biggest star in their match, uh, you know, a few ta- quite a few months ago now, I suppose, you know. But he did really well. He was their top man. And he was kind of, uh, you know, he played for Stoke City. He still plays for Stoke City. But he has, uh, you know, had a few problems with the fans from various other, uh, you know, clubs as well. I mean, one fan told him, I hope you burn, die of cardiac arrest, you effing Irish scumbag prick. You dirty little Fenian scum, was another uh, uh, abuse at him. Goals from Richie Sterling and Harry, Harry Keane. So I'm going to secure the most significant win over Germany since the World Cup in 1966. It's the first time they beat them, you know, in a competition for about 50 odd years, you know. I mean, they're going up against Ukraine, so we'll see how we get along with them. 
Uh, so this guy, um, James McLean, has really got a lot of, you know, shit, really, heaped on him. But in some ways, it's kind of been brought on by himself. You I mean, you just don't go around when you're a kind of well-known figure, especially in the football game, uh, you know, wearing, uh, you know, the opposition shirts, because you know that is going to cause a lot of resentment. And no matter what you're feeling, whether he doesn't like... Uh, I don't know, the English team or English people, I don't know why, he's in Stoke, if he doesn't, if he feels that way about it, and playing for a, you know, a top uh, English side, so it's a bit, a bit of a weird situation, and I've got some, don't have a lot of sympathy, really, because I think it's, he's asking for it himself. Anyway, what else we've got here? This is Irish businessman Declan Kelly has resigned from his post as the CEO of a global firm after he was uh, accused of drunken misconduct at a charity event. Declan Kelly was the chairman and chief executive of Tenco, a global public relations and advisory firm, but quit earlier this week after controversy uh, caused by his behaviour at a recent charity event which aimed to raise money for vaccines for poorer countries affected by covid the Irishman, who is a former journalist and is the brother of Irish Labour leader Alan Kelly, uh, was present at the charity event, which featured appearances and performance by global superstars Foo Fighters and Selena Gomez. He was accused of touching a number of men and women inappropriately and without their consent while intoxicated at the event. The Financial Times revealed and later he the, the Financial Times revealed and later apologised in a statement where he accepted he had made. Uh, a fool of himself. And it was a, a serious mistake for which I take full responsibility and apologise to those directly affected as well as to my colleagues and clients. And while he argued that he was a victim of a, a continued campaign against the reputation of our firm, he said he does not want the accusation to be an ongoing uh, distraction to the running of our company and he resigned his post. Uh, this is something he speaks on stage during a global uh, citizen uh, Citizen presents Global Go Live, the possible dream at Sedan's warehouse in uh, London, or rather New York City, sorry. The alleged incidents happened at the vaccine uh, fundraiser by Global Citizen. Uh, it's a, a charity chaired by uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and uh, backed by such public figures, including the US President Joe Biden. So he really made make a big mistake, this guy. Uh, he had an affair with a female executive, which had been going on for years, according to anonymous sources. Insiders told the outlet that the alleged affair was an open secret known by many at the firm. A statement from uh, the board of directors confirmed that Declan uh, Kelly had left the firm and was to be replaced immediately by co-founder uh, Paul Keeney. They thank Mr. Kelly for his leadership and dedication over the past 10 years in building uh, the company into the, one of the world's preeminent CEO advisory firms. They wish him good luck with his future and endeavours and said he is leaving the company in good shape, which is more than can be said for him, I'm sure. So it doesn't go on to uh, whatever else uh, he may or may not have done. But there again, you're talking about the demon drink. Uh, you know what I mean? People become uh, different people really when they're kind of get a bit plastered as it were had far too much and I just think it's bad news really bad news and uh, you know it's prevalent all over most people get on at one stage or other end up with far too much to drink and sort of wake up in the morning and have no idea what they were or what they did the evening before 
but while it's happening, they're just having a good time. But, uh, you know, they offend people. And can't touch courage, really. You sort of say, but you, you wouldn't have the, you know, the, the nerve or the courage to say otherwise to someone. <coughs> Pardon me. Okay, what have we got here? I found this interesting. Uh, uh, Noah Donahue says that little boy that was uh, disappeared. A man has allegedly confessed to killing Belfast teenager Noah Donahue in June of last year. After months of police uh, insistence that he died in an accident. As reported by the Sunday World, uh, a prisoner allegedly confessed to, to assaulting, abducting and killing the school boy before disposing of his body. The prisoner allegedly confessed uh, the crime to another prisoner who went to the police following his release and provided a detailed account of the confession. The, uh, the outlet reports that the prisoner broke down and confessed to, uh, to killing Noah on the 21st of June last year after attacking him in, in the Northwood area. The man claimed he was in the area that, that day to carry out a vigilante attack with a friend on a, on, on a sex offender. Hmm. 14-year-old Noah went missing on the 21st of June, like we said, after he left home to meet friends in a park to work on their Duke of Edinburgh project for schools. For school. He was later seen in the Shore Road region of uh, Belfast, and he was found naked and falling off his back, where police said, at the time, it could have indicated a head injury. His body was found six days later, deep inside a storm drain. His cause of death was found to be from drowning. Noah Dunhill was missing, uh, his, and his body was discovered in a deep drain, like I said. Uh, his mother was really, it's hard to say, but his mother was put a lot of time and energy into trying to find out what happened, and she's still working on it. Police said at the time that there was no foul play suspected. Uh, his mother, Fiona Dunhill, said, and Noah's Extended family have repeatedly called for further investigations into his death, saying many questions remained around his disappearance and his death. According to the Belfast Telegraph, Noah's family and legal team are taking the new allegations extremely seriously. And the police of Northern Ireland declined to comment due to the ongoing investigation. New revelations have been addressed by multiple Northern Ireland politicians, the uh, also Unionist Party leader, Doug Beatty writing on social media that this is important. The police look at this claim for the family and for the public confidence in this uh, system. He added that while the coroner has asked for uh, uh, a particular issue, I will be ra- uh, writing to ask them what that does mean. Because this is, uh, you know, it's just got to, something has got to stop here. You know, it's got to get down to it and find out what is going on and what actually did happen. Uh, Noah's mother took to Twitter on Sunday where she said that those who expected me to believe my beautiful boy willingly stripped and went into a pitch black storm drain will have to explain that narrative. Justice for Noah Donahue, she said. So it is, certainly is going to be an ongoing story, but it's wonderful what happened because he was such a, an innocent little boy. He wasn't actually doing it, a little boy, 14-year-old, wasn't doing anything to anyone from what we can uh, what I've uh, read in the local papers over there, and it's just kind of, I hope they do find and get this guy sorted out. You know, but the guy's in the prison, so it's hard to say, you know, why he would say that or what he did, unless they sort of carry on more investigations to find out that he was obviously outside and a free person. Uh, when this was all happened before he ended up in prison for whatever reason. doesn't say why, you know, but the reason why he was in prison. Anyway, what have we got here? This is the Irish Post. This is, uh, I think it's an American paper 
but you know, for for the global Irish. The Irish Post columnist Joe Hogan's new book explores themes of migration and identity. The following was an, ex- an extract from People That Don't Exist Are Citizens of a Made-Up Country. This is uh, about people going over, mostly from Ireland, over to England more than anywhere else, actually catching the boat like I did myself centuries ago, getting the boat from Belfast to Liverpool, etc., etc. And, uh, you know, the promised land as we thought it was. Anyway, I'm sitting in a car in County Cork looking out at the Atlantic. I'm looking out at the Atlantic uh, as so many have done before me. This is Ireland and this is a very Irish story. Sometime in the middle of the 1950s, in his mid-twenties, my father grew tired. By his own recounting, he grew weary of a city where the few jobs that existed were given out on the basis of a nod and a wink. He didn't want that. He didn't want, he said, to spend his young years waiting in line. Uh, he didn't want to, to realise too late that the future was going on somewhere else. He didn't want to, have to accept that the so-called little... Of what life was was oh, that was on offer in Ireland. He didn't want to have to be so grateful, so he got on a boat. He got on the boat and he left County Cork and he went across the Irish Sea to Britain. Alongside him, looking out from the railings of that boat, watching the lights of Cork recede, was the woman who would go on to be his what his mother. He would go on to be his mother. Wow. She was eighteen and leaving Ireland for the first time. I can see her now as I look in the car mirror. I can see her sitting there in the back seat. She was eighteen years of age and going across the Irish Sea to Britain, across the cold expanse, across the water. As that's what it that's what it's commonly known as across the water. You know what's going on, it works across the water. I have a picture of her now around that time. She had been long curling black hair and then uh, a neatly a neat angle length skirt. It was a photograph. It's a photograph, so it's not her exactly, but you can still see her. It was a bit faded. The photograph in the rearview mirror, I can see her now. The same woman, some fifty years on, I can see her eyes and her skin and her shorter, still dark hair. She's aged well. The lines around her eyes few. The graying at the sides little. She's nearly six decades and six children on from the younger woman, uh, in from the photograph. Six decades from getting off the boat, she's still in the photograph too. This book was written in the hills of rural Cork, looking down old Dan and Margaret Murphy's farm. A short way along the lane from here, between the two derelict buildings and a tree beside the stream. In the distance, the traffic of the main Cork road, and in the rain, yes, the rain, flocks of boisterous crows. An old map of this area shows that there were uh, only 12 dwellings in the yard at the top of the lane. There are now just one, a solitary house. It is a fairly secure sure bet, this, is being, this being Ireland, that some of the people who from, from those vanished dwellings went on to become immigrants, migrants, economic refugees, like myself. Um, on the walls of an Irish social club in England, there is a painted vision of this scene. The boron winds off about the chairs, the artist's skill giving... It, the perspective of distance and hay is cocked, cocked in the fields. White horse cottage, white whitewashed cottages rather. Dot the scene and it read half door. The men and women lean out. I can remember all this. This was part of my growing up. You know, thatch cottages and half door houses. There weren't many. They were kind of rare and then, but there were a number of around. 
At the table beneath, uh, I sit with my mother and father as I talk and drink. The floor is sticky, and on Saturday night on our Sunday afternoon, big-handed men dance with their their women, and they dance their way back home. Outsiders are, are on, on the streets of an English city, but inside are the immigrants, and it is a different place. My parents came to England from Cork in 1954, from an Ireland with little work and few prospects. Prior to the immigrant, their knowledge of Britain was scant, but newspapers, cinema and word of mouth all spoke of a land with employment opportunities aplenty. The promised land, like I said. This was really common. When I live in Belfast, a lot of people, a lot of you know, men, uh, just used to go over to England and you know, across the water and work and they'd come back home every you know, six weeks or so. You know, and sort of catch up with their family, keep in touch. But a lot of them just worked, and they're working sort of seven days a week, mostly in construction sites, I think. But it was not unusual. There was a number of men on our street who used to, were always away, you know, and that was just work. I don't think they were overjoyed about it, but they worked. It was not, after all, as if immigration was a, a radical option for the kind of Ireland they lived in or the kind of Irish they were. Whatever, though, about the ubiquity of their choice, the emotional impact of leaving home was not lessened. My mother accounts that for the first six months, she, she hardly left her room where she was staying. The city they came to was purely a matter of chance. Manchester, Sheffield, Glasgow, London were all places of work, all cities of immigration, but in the end have for no identifiable reason they can recall. They went to Birmingham, second largest city in the UK, by the way, and stayed there for over 40 years. So in the English Midlands, far from their Irish beginnings and the imaginings of their early lives, they had a family in a city they had chosen at random, uh, the way some people might make a choice by sticking a pen on a piece of paper. This is based on a singular personal story, albeit that the sheer number of Irish immigrants to Britain makes any accounting of, er- of even that experience a shared one. That is, I mean, there were thousands and thousands of people. That was just... Because like I said, there was no work in Ireland. There was no work. And uh, you lived on the dole, you know, basically. And that was, uh, you know, pretty frugal at the best of times. More importantly, though, it is, is it a family story that can be an insight into something that is more than even a burning social injury, in, issue. The question of immigration, of migration, of refugees. At any time during writing this book, I could have stopped and pinpointed a report about migrants in the Mediterranean or anywhere else. And But I chose my people, the Irish people who ended up going to England at that time in the 1950s, etc., etc. And like I just said, uh, where I lived, uh, lots and lots of men headed over, headed off to England, uh, you know, for, you know, to work. They had, I don't know if they had contracts, they just scored jobs and that was it. You know, we were there until maybe it was building set until the job finished. And they'd get home every uh, six months, ah, six months, every six weeks rather, just to catch up with their families. And they just did that and just sent money home, really, to, you know, keep the family alive. And, and uh, yeah, a standard of living. Not a high one, but a standard of living, you know, keep them, the wolf from the door and from becoming homeless. Because that was a fact of life then. And now for something completely different. This is the Moor Mountains. This kind of surprised me. The Northern Ireland Fire Service records more than 1,000 wildfires since 2016. More mountains, you know, the mountains are more and will sweep down to the sea. Percy French, all that type of stuff. There have been more than a thousand wildfires in the Moor Mountains over the last five years, according to the, you know, the Northern Ireland Fire Service. This is small and, and you know, small numbers. They, could, they think there may be some littler ones 
that didn't make the record, as it were, didn't get onto their books. Like the fire and sleeve down there in April, I believe that more than 90% of them were started deliberately. 90% were deliberately started. Farmers and vandals are often blamed for starting such fires, but a definitive cause is seldom given. It could be any number of causes, and these are certainly two of them. For the, for the most part, we find that those fires are started deliberately, and, and that have been that's been our experience over a number of years. A breakdown of the fire service numbers re- released under the Freedom of Information Act that there was one thousand and twelve more wildfires between the first of April, uh, twenty sixteen, and the thirty first of March, twenty twenty. A total of nine hundred thirty three were deemed deliberate. Wow, that's a lot. Mr. Jennings said, a deliberate fire for us in terms of the wildfire environment, we look at the potential cause. We are in an era of outstanding natural beauty. We don't have uh, uh, causes that are immediate or obvious causes in that environment. People talk about glass bottles and sun through, etc., uh, etc. Et that can be the cause of it. Our cigarette butts is another one. Uh, Northern fires show that that year more than 100 calls, 100 calls, wow. But uh, it was, you know, was, well, that was 2018, 2019. By, by the end of the year, it was 377 in, uh, you know, last year. As records, as regards geography, the Delavan highlights which station respond first with Kilkeel, 477, Newcastle, lovely part of the world, 366, Rathfylland, and Warren Point, another lovely part of the world. It is understandable that given the sheer number of call-outs, it is only fires of scale or those in significant locations that make the news cycle. But for many more mountain lovers, walkers, etc., etc., the aftermath causes uh, fresh damage to a very special landscape and annoys a lot of the walkers and people who go there on camping trips as well. It is, a, you know, the Moor Mountains is really spectacular. I have a nephew that sort of him and his family go out there really quite regularly uh, for little tramps through the, the mountains. But it's nothing like the ranges here. It's a bit more kind of, uh, what's the word, smaller. But it's a beautiful part of the world. You know, it's got the Silent Valley Reservoirs, et cetera, et cetera. It is a spectacular, you know, it's a really beautiful part of the world. It's so quiet, you know. And then we've got all the stone walls for all the farms and cottages around the place. And occasionally you might see the, the, the stone men, you know, as they're called. You guys who build the, the, sto- uh, the walls. Out of just, it's just pure stone. It's just an amazing sort of real skill. It looks like anybody can do that, but you can't. It's taken... Uh, he was taken to a, a, a location near Kilkeel to show not just the number of fires, but the damage they have caused the environment. Our, um, our first stop is an area spanning about one acre. Uh, this is a Mr. McAlinton. And he was, uh, and he was burnt in the same week as April's fire on, Don, on Donard. We are certainly seeing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fires, but it's the impact of the habitats, the impact on the soil, the impact on the water, the impact on the air that we are breathing, the impact on the food we are eating. It certainly covers the field. If you want people to look after these places and make them better for all of us, to deliver clean air, clean water, deliver the biodiversity, and deliver the, the, the mammals that we want to see in these places, to hold on to the carbon... And then we've got to start an active management problem. We've got to stop this. This has got, just got to stop. A storm-led recovery plan for damaged areas of the morning is expected to be finalised in the autumn. So that's that's basically it. That's uh, the Moor Mountains for you. And it is. Have you ever been over to the 
Northern Ireland at all. You'll have sort of you, know, you can't miss it. You know Newcastle, etc. You know in the uh, in the Moor Mountains, and just just it's a little kind of village. And the, but you know the, the the area around it, the hills, you know, more they call the mountains, but the mountains in Ireland, but not what uh, New Zealanders would call real mountains, you know. But there is, it's they're just beautiful, and it's you know a good place for peace and quiet, you know, tranquility. That's why a lot of people go there for a walk. It's just so you know spiritual in a lot of ways. Anyway, that's uh, all for me this week. I'm sorry it's been so short, but. Like I said, I'm having computer problems again. Maybe I should start up a, a savings club and try and get some people to buy me a new computer. But anyway, 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 uh, I'd like to wish you all a wonderful week ahead and be kind to one another and enjoy this weather. But we're having a really, you know, it's bloody cold. There's no two ways about that. But when it comes to about, you know, 10 o'clock or towards midday, the sun comes out and it's quite warm for, you know, until about you know, 3 o'clock or something in the, the, the cold sort of slips back in. Anyway, on that note, I will love you and leave you. Okay? See you next week. Bye. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.